Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is John Higgs, the author of a brand new book on a truly fascinating subject titled Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and the British Psyche. Welcome, John. Hi, Steve. Lovely to talk to you. You as well. And congratulations on your book. It's uh, truly a great read. It's an incredibly unique storyline. And I have to ask how you came up with this concept. It was it was on one of those random um, moments when you just fall down a Wikipedia hole. <laughs> and for some reason, I just found myself on the Wikipedia page for the first James Bond film, Doctor No. And I just saw the release date, 5th of October, 1962. And I'm enough of a Beatles nerd that I just thought, no, I can't be right. No way that came out on the same day as the first Beatles record. So I sort of went off and checked that. And uh, it just struck me as such an um, unexpected, uh, surprising coincidence. And the moment I started to see both of those together, by just by placing them next to each other, they just seemed to sort of reveal so much about themselves, all this sort of stuff about masculinity and class and about British identity and, uh, you know, the, the, the need for a new way to live, a new way to see ourselves in the 1960s. It all seemed to come pouring out of them. And I just thought, oh, this is <laughs> this is rich territory. This is a good one I've stumbled upon here. Definitely. And I, and I have to say, uh, I love the title, Love and Let Die. That's genius. Did you come up with that? I did. I was a bit ashamed of it. I thought that's too um, blatant. Originally, when I sold the book to the publisher, it was called um, Happiness is a Warm Gun. Right? I thought, that's a, that's a cool title. I like that. But you still had to explain to people what it was. And then this, this Love and Let Die just sort of appeared in my head. And I thought, Oh, it's shameless. It's too obvious. It's it's too commercial. It's a pun. I can't do it. I can't go there. And I had a meeting with my publisher and we're talking about other things. And I keep thinking, should I mention to her this possible title? And I did. And the moment I did, she goes, yes, that's it. That's the title. And it sort of has been ever since. I sort of, it's, it's quite rare for me to accidentally come up with a commercial book. 
No, it's not normally the territory I'm in. I was going to say, you might be our first uh, author we've had on here who who has thought too commercial was a bad thing. So congrats on that. <laughs> um, I love the cover art too, by the way, as a graphic artist. And um, Thank you. You know, I, th- I thought Love and Let Die was perfect. So Yeah. No, I, I, love, I love the cover. It somehow managed to be retro and quite classy at the same time, which is quite a hard thing to, to pull off. The book is set up year by year, and it begins in 1945 to kind of set things up, and it ends really currently in 2022 with James Bond Will Return, which, you know, if a lot of people have been following that story, that's interesting. But the structure is important because, as you write, culturally, things were being born for which there was no precedent. Yeah, because they're so familiar to us, you know, the James Bond films, the the music of the Beatles, they're so familiar. We've grown up with them. They've always been there. We very rarely notice just how implausible they are. You know, the idea of, say, the James Bond films, the idea that you could come up with uh, an action film about this one guy and then go on to make 25 sequels, you know, over a period of 60 years. And, you know, everyone makes money and everyone is a massive success. It's impossible. Mm. No one could do that. If it, if it was possible, every film producer would be doing it, but they can't do it because it's in no way possible. <laughs> but because we're just so familiar with James Bond, it, it doesn't strike us as odd, you know. And in a similar way, the idea that, um, you know, a band could form that could have the sort of impact or produce the sort of level of work that the Beatles did, the be- that a band could be as important as the Beatles, it just seems ridiculous to us. We wouldn't, it's just in, in, impossible. And in fact, in some ways, they seem to have more in common with each other than their peers, because they are so odd and different to the rest of the, you know, the recording industry or the, or the film industry. And the overlap uh, between these two cultural phenomenons, as you point out in your book, is incredible. And you wrote that they arrived at a, a pivotal time and at stake was how the British would come to define themselves. That strikes me as an enormous statement. It is, but I, I you know, I, I stand by it. For us people here in Britain, it was the point in history where we could no longer be denied that we weren't like a great empire, that we weren't Britain rules the waves, you know. The stories that we used to tell ourselves, how we used to see ourselves, were very much wrapped up, and they had been for a couple of hundred years, in this sense of, you know, Britannia rules the waves, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Mm. That was us. And by that point, even the most reactionary sort of uh, pro-empire British establishment Tory had to admit that it was all over and we weren't that anymore. And it just raised the question, well, if if we're not that, then who are we? You know, who are we now? Um, And there was this real hunger for a a new sense of us, a a, a sort of a modern Britain. Uh, And what's interesting about Bond and the Beatles is they both presented quite contradictory visions of what modern Britain should be. Um, If you look at James Bond, it's modern in the sense it's got all these gadgets and, you know, it's, it flies around the world and there's there's sort of, you know, uh, luxury clothes and great, you know, great food and great drink and everything on the material level has been improved. But the attitudes, people's attitudes stay the same. Attitudes to women, attitudes to, um, you know, foreigners, um, attitudes to the role of Britain in the world. It, it keeps those as traditional as possible. The Beatles, on the other hand, 
they kind of liked old things, you know, they like the sort of faux Victoriana of Sergeant Pepper, you know, they wrote these songs about their childhood, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields. For them, it was attitudes that needed to change, attitudes to sex, to drugs, to religion, to, you know, to everything, really. Um, that's what would make us modern, to change our minds, change how we saw things. Uh, so you've got this lovely um, two opposing sort of arguments for what modern Britain should be. And so you can sort of see a in the clash between that it's it's uh it's kind of like uh britain having you know not not a breakdown but a very very globally public battle for the soul of what it means to be from this country one of the things i noted was that you know you lay down the roots of each beetle and they're mm. they're growing up in family life and then the bond creator uh, writer ian fleming very succinctly and, you know, the, you can't help but notice that the Beatles were, you know, very young and they created what they did quite joyously. Fleming, on the other hand, was middle-aged and wrote as a way to avoid reality. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he always talked about Bond as a thing he created to avoid what he called the hideous specter of matrimony. You know, he was going to get married to the love of his life, but... He was not not a sort of man who had, had matured properly, hadn't really sort of grown up the the idea of, you know, being emotionally uh, joined to another person. He wasn't quite there yet. You know, his health was fading um, as he continued to write the Bond films and certainly, sorry, the Bond books, but certainly as the films started to appear. Uh, he did find himself becoming quite rich at the time when it was almost too late for him. Mm. You know, he he couldn't in sort of enjoy it all his life. He wanted to be rich and famous, but he, he got he got there at a time when he was sort of deeply unhappy and, uh, you know, drinking and smoking too much. And his health was in a very, very bad state. And, you know, him and his wife were both having affairs. And it, you just get the sense that he had a lot of demons uh, which you can trace back to his childhood and and, and all these things. So again, there was a, a you know a huge contrast there. Yeah, and you can see some of those things manifest themselves in Bond. Certainly, his relationships with women and that kind of thing. Bond was very much um, him. When Bond thought something, that was what Ian Fleming thought. Bond was sort of a wish fulfillment fantasy. Bond was the life that he wanted to have, so he didn't have it. Um, even though to most people his life does sound, you know, quite wonderful. He had this 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 house in in, in the North Shore of Jamaica, right. and he would go there for a few months every winter to write. And it was just just paradise there, you know, just a really sort of beautiful place. It's it sounds, you know, an amazing life for a lot of people. But you know, if if you're dark inside, you know, it doesn't really matter how beautiful it is is around you, I guess. So, yeah, so he basically created Bond to, to be the person he wanted to, to, to be the brave person that he wanted right. to be. Bond could, you know, drink and smoke as much as he liked. It wouldn't affect his health, you know. Bond could romance all these wonderful women and then they'd just sort of disappear and he wouldn't have to deal with the realities of, a, you know, an actual human-adult relationship. And the character was initially aimed at adults, but it found a following amongst uh, young British boys, uh, you know, of, mm everybody but british in particular and you wrote it was an aspirational fantasy yeah very much so uh, that's, that's the thing with bond it has this sort of way of saying um particularly to male viewers you know wouldn't you like your life to be a bit more like this you know in a way that i mean you don't you know no one fantasizes about being jason Bourne. it's, it's a very different thing bond's not what men 
need to be you know it's not what men should be it's men, it's what men want to be it's pure fantasy um and as such it's never ideologically sound or easy to defend it is true and it is valid because exploring those fantasies and bringing them out into the light and seeing what they make of them is i think ultimately a healthy thing and if you look at how the character of James Bond has changed over the decades. It's changed an awful lot. It's kind of like a, a map of how the idealized version of being male right. has shifted over the last 60 years. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with John Higgs. He's the author of a new book called Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and the British Psyche. So you've laid out that map of Bond quite nicely. On the other hand, the Beatles embodied a very different version of male identity. You know, their singles, you write, act as a conversation between the band and their female teenage audience. And for teenage boys at that point in time, it was a bit confusing and against type, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. When you, if you were growing up in the 1960s, and you, uh, it was in, it was all this was in the shadow of the Second World War, particularly in Britain. There's still bomb sites around a lot of towns. A lot of towns were still in ruins from um, the Luftwaffe bombings, uh, and there was a diet of like war comics, and they were very much black and white. To be brave meant to fight, uh, and the idealized male character was good at fighting because that way he could protect his family he could protect women uh from from the bad guys it, and it, it's you know the, the actual generation who'd lived through the war had a you know a far more nuanced understanding of, of what war and, and violence was like um there's a great deal of undiagnosed you know post-traumatic stress uh, in, in the whole country and across the entire world obviously but for the kids growing up then there's this sense that you know, to be brave, to be strong, to fight uh, was what a man should be. And yet at the same time, that didn't seem to be what the, 
girls wanted. They wanted these uh, slightly effeminate sort of, um, you know, uh, scousers from Liverpool who talked about emotions and had longish hair and, you know, very alternate uh, vision. But now, of course, we look back at them, you know, and we can't see what the fuss was about. We look at their hair and we think, well, that's what's shocking about their hair. You know, it's because we, we've changed our, our values and our, uh, on our ways of, uh, you know, judging things so much over the years uh, because of them. There's a couple of great quotes, and I'm only going to assume that you're a Beatles fan based on these writings, but there's a few yeah. things I wanted to ask you about. And one is, you know, you write that that first seven-inch single was brand new, simultaneously innocuous and world-changing, with no past to speak of, but a great weight from the future is bestowed upon it. That mm -hmm. is pretty heavy duty it is but i think the thing with the beatles is further we get away from them the sort of bigger they seem to uh appear i mean it wasn't that long ago that people used to talk about the beatles and the stones as if they were in you know some way comparable or you know some some way equal you don't even get that anymore it's always it's always um tends to be the Beatles and Shakespeare tends to be what sort of, you know, sums up England or, or, or sums up Britain. It's partly because their story's so great. The relationships between the four men are so fascinating. They're, they make a great myth. It's more sort of, once you realise how much music of such exceptional originality they produced in this, such a short period of time, the whole thing takes on a quite unbelievable and uh, yeah utterly implausible sort of magic in in, in some way the the, the uh, beatles just get bigger and bigger and bigger you know and, and each generation picks them up in a way that doesn't really happen to a lot of the bands of the 20th century and certainly a lot of the bands of the 1960s you know someone like bob dylan for all uh will recognize him as a genius his audience are the baby boomer generation and he hasn't really got an audience younger than that you know someone like um elvis presley there was a the you know the, the value of you know the elvis presley collectibles has collapsed quite a bit because elvis presley fans are sort of dying off and they're not really being sort of replaced but the beatles are very different there you speak to anyone from generation z there's a very strong chance they will know the name of all the four beatles oh, if they learn an instrument if they learn a guitar or keyboards or something like that they probably will learn to play a beatles song the Beatles songs are our folk music now. They are the music that is just around us that uh, you you cannot avoid hearing. They're just the music that, you know, the songs that everybody knows. Because they're, they're just so strong and they, they, they're so good, I think. So there's another one that closes that thought. And you talk about the extent to which the Beatles changed Western society can be glimpsed when you compare the four fresh-faced young boys on the cover of their first album versus the four strange, hairy men on the cover of Abbey Road. Mm. Yeah, ab absolutely. Their last recording album. That was That is just six and a half years between those, those photos. What, what's what's so fascinating about that? It's, it's not that... Um, the strange hairy men didn't exist back in 1962 when that first photograph was taken. So they couldn't have been imagined, you know, men who had the sort of ideas and beliefs and behaved like those men just were unimaginable at the time. 
And the, the thing with the Beatles is very quickly they became the most famous and loved entertainers on the entire planet at the point when television was uh, beaming them into everybody's houses, where the point where they were being photographed and, you know, the media existed to distribute them to, to the entire world. And at that point, they just sucked up everything that fascinated them in the counterculture and the avant-garde and they sort of distilled it to gold and they just sort of uh sort of hosed the mainstream culture with it there's never really been a an evolutionary vector for ideas like that and the, the world was very different after the beatles and you can't really say that about any other band you know it was quite extraordinary the impact that they had Definitely. And, and viewpoints and culture and all that as well. Um, McCartney was asked to sum up the Beatles in the 90s, and he said they were about love. Mm. And you posit that while the Beatles represent love, James Bond represents death. I agree, but I do have to ask, is it that simple? Yeah, it's a simplification, obviously. It's a nice little sort of framing device. But it's, a, it's a useful one because uh, it does sort of reveal a lot. It does sort of open up a lot. I mean, James Bond... His unique USP is that he has a license to kill. Right? He has the, the correct paperwork from the British Crown to sort of kill anyone he likes. And so his films are Die Another Day, you know, A View to a Kill. You know, he, 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 he's an assassin. He's an establishment assassin. He's there to sort of to kill. Whereas the Beatles, it's all you need is love, love me do. You know, it's, it's the summer of love. It's, it's the summation of, of everything they did. And the thing with love and death, is they have this weird, um, uh, they're not opposites, but they're, they're always sort of connected. It's like Freudians, you know, the, the, the two main drives are Eros and Thanatos, the love drive and death drive. And if you look in mythology, the, the relationship between Venus and Mars, you know, the goddess of love and the god of war, it, it is a love sort of story. They're, they're sort of very much two overwhelmingly important competing drives in us. So... When I was talking earlier about how Britain was trying to work out, you know, who it was and what it meant to be sort of British, for a Freudian, you know, it would make sense that that struggle would play out in our in Thanatos, our death drive and Eros, our sort of love drive. And it works quite well because action films are a great way of enjoying car chases and shootouts and, and violence and things like that in a way that doesn't really sort of harm people. You know, rock music is a great vehicle for emotion, for, for talking about relationships and, and stuff like that. So even though, yes, it's just a nice, funny little conceit, yeah, it is quite an informative one, I think. Definitely. And, they're, you know, they are both forms of escapism. And, um, you know, for all that, that weight that you just mentioned, you also write that for all that Bond and the Beatles can seem opposing sides in that fight to define the British Empire or post-British Empire. They're both equally self-mocking. Now, I can definitely mm. see that with the Beatles. Bond less so. Can you expand on that? Yeah, not so much the character of Bond, but the Bond films themselves always have a little sort of cheeky wink at the audience. Mm. It's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. You know, at the end of Goldfinger, there's a bomb counting down in Fort Knox, and it uh, it gets diffused when it reads 007. Mm. And it's a little, and the audience laughs because it's a little sort of out of universe sort of joke. It gets quite extreme where you get the double taking pigeon in um, Moonraker and, you know, really quite absurd sort of humor in the 70s and, and things like that. The, the character of Q really helps here 
because Q is the character who's not impressed by Bond. You know, right. he's the guy who thinks he's just this annoying, you know, uh, idiot who's going to come in and, and break all his stuff. They almost kind of need that because if if he was just this total hero, it would just be awful. There's a sort of self-aware thing in the films that it they're sort of on the side of the audience, really. It's, it's they go they know how daft they are, they know how absurd they get, but they also know you want that, and and they're willing to give it to you. You know, in 1964, uh, in the form of Sean Connery, he was kind of insulting the Beatles and making it clear, you know, like you said earlier, that they were the opposite of what he stood for. Oh, absolutely. But five years later, he was trying to catch up the character of James Bond, I should point out. When George Lazenby, who, my least favorite Bond, probably most people's, but, you know, all Mm -hmm. of a sudden had long hair and flowery clothes and it was a different character. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in... In 1964, when uh, Sean Connery dismisses Bond, he has a line of dialogue about how drinking Dom Perignon of a certain year below a certain temperature is like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Um, and it's odd because it's it's rare for this character who's supposed to know what's quality, to know what's sort of, you know, good, to sort of get something so wrong. And it's quite noticeable that since that, He's never made any reference to pop culture hmm. ever again in any film. You know, you, ne- you never know what he thinks of the new Beyonce album or or something like that. It's it's a world in which he he hasn't mastered. He, so they sort of keep him out of it. It's it's a real sort of uh, shock. But yeah, certainly by the end of the sixties, George Lazenby turned down a lot of money to do another film um, was because he thought it was over. You know, the idea that an establishment killer was a sort of viable sort of character for films going forward when everyone knew that it was all about, you know, make love, not war at that sort of mm. point. To be, you know, dressed in a tuxedo when really he wanted the flowery shirts and the, and the long hair. As far as George Lazenby could see, you know, the Beatles, you know, had won. That was the future. That was the attitudes going forward. Bond was an anachronism. It would all be over. And I think if he'd realised then that at that point... It was the Beatles that were going to die Hmm. and that James Bond was the thing that was going to become a tradition and keep on and keep on over the decades that followed. He would have been genuinely, you know, shocked, genuinely gobsmacked. The the, the notion that that the Bond films are now out of date and that they should stop uh, and we've had enough and that they're a bit ridiculous has been with us since that point. Hmm. Every film from then on has had reviews that basically say, yeah, you should stop this now, lads. You know, this is getting a bit silly now. All the way to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, that it still goes on. That tradition is a powerful thing. There's a there's a strength in that. There is a sort of power. And that's something we do learn from Bond. The strength, really. The power of tradition. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with John Higgs. He's the author of Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche. One of the truly great and unique observations, they shared the name of a cruel and murderous enemy. (laughs) Yes. Can you expand on that? Because I love that. I'm basically being rude about Phil Spector at that, yep. at that point. Um, yeah. Phil Spector, though, was a you know was a horror. You know, it's it is not a surprise that he murdered someone. The level of sort of bombast in his production, and a lot of his records are amazing. But it, whether it fitted the Beatles towards the end is is uh, you know 
you could argue it, but certainly people like Paul McCartney really hated what he did to something like The Long and Winding Road, which when it's presented as a sort of quite a gentle sort of thing, it's beautiful, it's a lovely, lovely song. But the way Phil Spector turned it into this really saccharine sort of, you know, really ruined that song for a generation, I think. So to have, you know, the death of the Beatles coming from Spectre uh, did seem quite apt on, on, on the level of this book. Yeah, and you, you said it would have been preferable to face Bond's Spectre rather than Phil Spectre. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, aside from Fantastic Enemies, um, the so-called Bond girls were a huge part of these films. Um, in fact, Ringo's wife figured prominently in one movie. Ooh, Barbara Back, yes. The spy who loved me. Like much of the cultural shifts that went on in the 60s and 70s, the Bond girls also progressed, didn't they? Yes, they did. But it's interesting that, you know, Every time there'd be a new Bond film announced, they'd, uh, they'd announce the Bond girl and they'd say, oh, but they're not like the old Bond girls. You know, they go, they've they been updated, you know, they've been improved, they've got more agency or something like that. And then the very next film will come along and they'd have to say again, but they're still not like the old mm. Bond girls. It's as if they weren't the people who created all the old Bond girls in the first place. You know, it slowly became apparent that the problem wasn't actually the girls, the problem was the character of Bond. The problem was the, the idea that, you know, women who sleep with James Bond that die shortly afterwards. It's, it's, it's there in the very first Ian Fleming novel. It's quite integral to the character. And uh, it's fascinating. I don't want to get too spoilery about the no, last no, James Bond definitely. film, but it's only now really started to be tackled. It's sort of that idea gets looked at on the, the level of plot, right. essentially, which is the level that the character of James Bond can, can tackle it in, in that film. I mean, it's only been 60 years, so, I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I find it um, funny that, it, in particular, the character Strawberry Fields, uh, who's played by Gemma Arterton in the film Quantum of Solace, is a real key turning point because she's the, the actor who's spoken out probably most publicly about regretting taking on the role. And at the time it made sense, but she's not comfortable with it now. And she's written a short story where she rewrites that character's scenes from, from a more feminist point of view. Because at the time when she appeared in Quantum of Solace, the rate at which the women who slept with Daniel Craig's James Bond died was 100%. <laughs> Every single one Ouch. slept with died. But when she died, that was kind of it. It sort of it stopped. And, uh, you know, it's so the fact that it was a Beatles themed Bond girl that was the sort of turning point for my purposes, which <laughs> was just slightly irresistible, I think. Well, speaking of Strawberry Fields, music was always a huge factor, along with the graphics to the opening of every Bond movie. And, you know, the Beatles with their album covers, which were always cutting edge. But, you know, Live and Let Die is way up there for me based on age and when I saw that. And it's, it's ironic. That is written by the same guy who wrote Can't Buy Me Love, for instance. You know, we talked about yeah. that earlier, but uh, it's a great theme song. It's the most un-Paul McCartney-like lyric that he's probably ever written. When you listen to his songs, they're about love, they're about home, they're about family, they're about all that. But he's also a craftsman. You know, you hire Paul McCartney to write you a Bond song, you're going to get the best Bond song you possibly could get and so even though the the the, the lyrics are very much 
they're very quite dark. But as someone who sort of used to be optimistic and say, you know, live and let live, but now life's ruined them and now they don't think that anymore. It's live and let die. <laughs> very, very on Paul McCartney. Very on Paul McCartney. Well, let me close with, unfortunately, another dark side is that, uh, well, not dark, it's interestingly dark, let me say. I didn't know George Martin scored that film, first of all. But, Mm -hmm. you know, with Paul writing that song, it's 1971, and it's amid, you know, rumors of a Beatles reunion. And this hit effectively squelched that reunion. And I point out, you hilariously note, Bond didn't kill the Beatles, but it's a strange irony that once they had split, he kept them dead. So yeah, it's 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 certainly an argument you could make. Particularly, it was because of the career of Paul. Um, we forget now, but after the Beatles, he was critically derided, especially those first few years. The his McCartney album, the album Ram, the first Wings album, uh, Wildlife. These got really stinking, scathing reviews. George was very successful to start with. Right. Um, the All Things Must Pass album was a huge success. Ringo was having massive hit singles, you know. Uh, John's first albums were certainly critically sort of analysed, and it was Paul's career that was very much in the doldrum. And by about 1973, John and Paul's relationship was being repaired. They were speaking, they were sort of fixed together. John was doing a, a lot of music with George and Ringo, and they sort of vaguely talked about sort of forming a band now, nothing ever came of it. Um, but there was always the ever-present sort of, you know, will you get back together? Will you sort of record together? Will you get... And you sort of suspect that if Paul's career hadn't taken off again, that's the time he would have agreed to it. Uh, and it would have been then. But Live and Let Die was such a massive single. And then the Band on the Run album was such a sort of massive hit that he was away. He had his own career. He, Wings became this huge things it led to wings over america and and all that sort of stuff so he didn't need it at that point um and then of course at the end of the the 70s we moved john lennon so it it could never have happened if it was going to happen it would have been that point Hmm. it was you know that 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 bond theme was a turning point that means sadly or perhaps it's for the best who knows yeah i don't think anyone gets away from bond i don't remember him ever arresting somebody they're all dead (laughs) (laughs) well listen i want to thank you for joining us and uh, your book is just out now it's love and let die james bond the beatles and the british psyche john higgs is the author here and uh you know, there's a lot to talk about, but man, there's so much more to read about. So I hope all of our listeners will go out there and pick it up. It's it's so much fun and fascinating, and uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. Lovely talking to you, Steve. It's been, it's been a pleasure. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.